Now, analysis and reaction. Here is NL News Director Shane Woodford on 610 AM. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in. Beautiful day shaping up here in Kamloops, although weather forecast says it might turn around this afternoon. Fingers crossed it won't do that. We've got a fact show for you. Uh, brewing controversy between UBCM and China, while UBCM President Arjun Singh will be in studio in a little bit. We're also going to have an extended discussion with Jeffrey Myers in the back half of the show covering Canadian and American politics. But as we do every single Tuesday after a Monday night school board meeting, we start with the school board chair of the Kamloops Thompson School District, Kathleen Karpak. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Excellent. So, a uh, big meeting last night, the last one of the... Last one of the school year. The last one in the school year. Does everybody get a little misty? Uh, no, I think we're all <laughs> looking forward to a bit of a summer break. <laughs> <laughs> um, just uh, wanted to talk about a little bit before we get into some of the school stuff. Um, there's an interesting discussion that's going around about daylight savings time. And I'll, I'll be honest with you. Like, my gut reaction is I think we're going to do it. I think the province is going to move to eliminate daylight savings time. The Premier, of course, has said, listen... We need Oregon and California and Washington State to do it all together. That seems to be moving in that direction. And then yesterday they announced a survey to kind of get the feeling of the people. But, I mean, the Premier's told me several times that this is by far the biggest issue. People are just constantly sending them letters and ringing, this sucks, please get rid of the daylight savings time. Um, what's your feeling on it? And from a school perspective, is it a good or a bad thing if we dump daylight savings time? So when we have the time change, it really affects our students especially in the spring, yeah, they lose an hour of sleep. And uh, it really negatively affects their learning. So we really kind of lose almost a week of high-functioning learning that happens with kids because they're tired and they're cranky. There's also the safety aspect of it, that when you have kids that are walking to and from school and drivers are tired, and we know from ICBC stats that there are more accidents in that week following the time change, yeah. it puts our students at higher risk. So from my perspective, I support going to the same time all year. Which, the, the summertime or the wintertime? Summertime. <laughs> that seems to be the overwhelming one. Uh, from a teacher's perspective, is it, is it you know, do you find yourself kind of, oh, you know, the extra cup of coffee in the morning? Does it help or not from the teacher's perspective? Um, I can't speak for the teachers, um, but I do know that my kids are pretty darn grumpy those days. Yeah, yeah. So from a school perspective, then you're all for this idea. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Um, one of the other issues that, uh, that came up sort of provincially that has a direct impact on, on schools, and Adrian Dix, the health minister, was talking about it uh, in an update about a week or so ago, was the, first the measles catch-up program, which they're doing now, uh, and then come September, there's going to be the mandatory requirement for all students showing up in the school district to hand over their vaccination records so you guys know, okay, we're good, we're good, oh, this person's not caught up, and then, you know, whatever steps follow after that. Um, from the measles perspective, a, how's your sense of how's it going? And, and from uh, September coming to this big change, are you ready for that? Is there still some work needed to be done on that front? Do you still need some resources? What's the, how's that sort of stage looking from a setup perspective? We still don't have any more information on how that's going to roll out. <laughs> nothing? So, nothing. So that's a bit of a challenge for us because we literally have three days of school left yeah. for our elementary school kids. So being able to get notifications out to parents through their school children, we have a very limited amount of time if they're going to be needing additional documentation come September, which means that there could be a mad scramble in September as we try to get this all organized. I believe the health minister said that schools would find out in June. It is June 25th, so there's not much time left. What information do you guys need on this thing? 
we need to know what information it is that the government actually wants us to collect. So does that mean that BC kids that have been immunized through the health offices in BC, do we need to go and direct parents to the, the, you know, the clinics to get a vaccination record? Or does the government already have that and, and feels that that's enough? Um, obviously, this catch-up program that was actually, that happened in schools, yeah. schools weren't asked about which kids had their immunizations. That was all through health units. The government already has that data. Mm. So when I hear that we have to have immunization records, what exactly does that mean? Does that mean just for students that have been out of province? Does it mean everybody? So we really need a lot more clarity around that. So if the health authorities have the records, then why do you guys even need, need to be involved then? That would be the question. <laughs> I mean, uh, they, yeah, I don't, I'm sorry, I'm a little confused, caught off guard by that, because my, my assumption was that, okay, if we're asking for students to cough up health records, vaccination records, in September, that this was information the province didn't have, uh, my thought was to identify, okay, this person's behind, this person doesn't have it, and then we can go to the parents and say what's going on, maybe... Maybe they just missed a step, or maybe we need to educate them uh, from an anti-vaxxer perspective. But if the data is there, then why do we need the data again? I guess, I don't know, I, that's, that's caught me off guard. Well, that, that's the big question around this, is what data are we collecting? Yeah. Who are we collecting it from? Yeah. Where does it already exist in the government system? So what gap are we trying to fill? Huh. Uh, from a resourcing perspective? Uh, is it going to mean more staff? More? Do you need some more funding to deal with that kind of bureaucracy? What's your thought there? Again, because we don't know the don't amount know. of data that we're going to collect, we have no idea what resources we'll need. Oh, well, the province obviously needs to do some work. Uh, last night's school board meeting, any big issues to knock off the table? Uh, so we had a, an amazing report about our after-school program that we have happening. And this is a school-based program happens yeah. in our schools uh, after school. Um, it's the largest of its kind in the province. And uh, it's a joint uh, project that's run by the school district, United Way, City of Kamloops, and Ministry of Children and Families. And what it does is it addresses that gap time between when kids get out of school and parents finish work. And they run in three eight-week programs that we offer. Yeah. And they're focused on sports, they're focused on arts, and then they're uh, focused on foods. And so you may have heard of some of the See It, Try It, Do It, yeah. or Cook It, Try It, Eat It programs that happen. Those yeah. are sponsored by the city. Um, and what happens is we get local experts come in and teach these kids. Cool. And uh, they're very successful. When you say successful, what do you mean? I, mean, I assume from an enrollment perspective. We have over 2,000 kids that took part wow. last year. Uh, over 70 individual programs that happened. And uh, the best thing about it is that it's free. What was the most popular one? I don't know which one was the most popular, but we have a variety. So kids learn things like tennis, mm. basketball, lacrosse. They learn how to cook. They're doing different types of art, dance. And it's all about getting kids involved and getting them to try something that they might not have tried before. You were, you were selling me on the fly fishing one off the air which I thought was interesting. They so, actually send kids out to a river? What's going on there? So, so we have a uh, fly fishing course that we approved yeah. uh, last night, and it's actually a field biology course. And uh, kids have to learn how to fly ties, but with that is understanding habitat, 
the ecology of the uh, landscape, right. looking at the insects, what <laughs> food that the trout are eating, their, habit, their habits. Um, Interesting. And so it's, it's actually an applied field biology course. And yeah, they do go out to a lake and they go fishing. That's awesome. Uh, last question to you, and that's always the, the big one is enrollment. And it's always the question mark. You guys have projections. Uh, and over the last few years, sometimes those projections have been sort of close and sometimes they've been wildly inaccurate when, you know, it's all dependent on who's moving into town and how many kids are going to show up in September that you did not expect. Uh, ballpark right now, as you look towards September after seeing three years of... of you know, largely unexpected student growth to the levels that you've seen? Um, that trend is probably going to continue, that we are growing. Kamloops is a growing community. Yeah. We are seeing in-migration from the lower mainland and from uh, other areas of the province. So we do expect that we'll be seeing some more growth. We have, I think, a fairly good idea of what to expect. That's why we uh, had the uh, approval back in December for some more portables. So we've put them where we expect to be seeing that growth. Of course, September, we don't know which, which families will be moving in over the summer. And that's always our question mark. Yeah. But uh, we'll be able to roll with it come September. <laughs> Unless they show up in the wrong place. Unless they show up in the wrong place, yes. If we get 100 kids in Juniper, we could be in trouble. <laughs> Kathleen, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Appreciated you. our Appreciated our talks over the years. Kathleen Karpak, chair of the Kamloops Thompson School Board. And we'll be right back with Arjun Singh as the president of the UBCM, facing a bit of a controversy over this whole China thing. RadioNL.com, local news now. You're listening to Shane Woodford on Radio NL 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Good morning. Welcome back. The voice you heard right there is the president of the Union of BC Municipalities, also a Kamloops counselor. It was live? <laughs> oh, boy. How are you, Arjun? I'm good, thanks, Shane. How are you? Good. Thanks for coming in. I appreciate okay. the opportunity. Uh, let's get it with it. Um, you're aware of the controversy swirling around this whole China thing. They put mm -hmm. on a reception every year at the UBCM. Uh, as I understand it, there have been concerns in the past, uh, but this year seems especially pertinent as China's um, trying to kick around some of our industries, engaging in a bit of a trade war and a huffy, puffy, petulant child attitude uh, over this whole Wai Wei, Meng Wanzhou <coughs> situation. Mm -hmm. You know that they've detained a couple of Canadians. So the China thing seems a little more pertinent today. So I guess the big question to you is, uh, as you've seen this thing raised, you've seen it get uh, a little bit of steam and you've seen the reaction to it, is it time to rethink the reception and put, and put an end to it or no? Well, I think, first of all, let's go back up a little bit here, Shane. So the, the reception's been going on for seven years, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, came across, came about essentially because there was an economic development interest that a lot of our members had across the, across the province, especially in the interior, uh, to be frank with you. There's a lot of um, uh, people in a lot of local, local communities, ours included actually back in the day, uh, that were looking at China for some economic development opportunities, looking for some um, uh, trade back and forth and that kind of thing. Um, and so that's kind of the history of this whole thing. Yeah. Um, certainly, I've, there's um, no stranger, no uh, secret people locally, I, I've been talking about human rights democracy for a long time, and in China uh, as well, around the council table back you know, 10, 12 years ago. Um, so this, 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 this controversy now is, is stemming from, I think, a, a place of a really important discussion, a really important debate. Uh, and what I've noticed so far is that the, the feedback from local leaders across the province has been mixed. We have some leaders who are saying, 
uh, no, we should not, not do this. It's really uh, a bad thing that how you how you, how you set up the interview way as you stopped as you started off. Others are saying, no, we should keep on doing this. Uh, and if people want to go, they can go. If they don't want to go, they don't have to go kind of thing, right? Yeah, but um, China is the only government, the only country that does it. I mean, yeah. the United States is a huge economic partner to Canada. India is a growing economic yeah. partner. None of those countries are throwing, you know, receptions at UBCM. And China, considering some of the stuff that's made the headlines and the human rights, which, to your credit, you have spoken out about in the past. Yeah. But, you know, they are perhaps one of the most undemocratic countries in the world. I agree. And, you know, so you have to ask yourself, why are they there at a local government level cutting you guys a check and throwing a reception? Because it's not out of a love for local government and democracy. So why are they doing it? Well, and I, so I think they're doing it because they want the economic development opportunities happen back and forth as well. But I also think that... You don't think they're trying to build relationships with local politicians in order to exert some soft power? Well, uh, so let's go back to your question around whether we're, we're, what we're doing about this right now, right? I think the UBCM executive is very alive to this issue. Yeah. Uh, we'll be talking about it again in July. Um, and we're listening to our members. So I think ultimately, you know, what I think is kind of immaterial in a lot of ways as, a, as an individual, I, I have a responsibility to basically um, look at this from the perspective of that, that diversity of our membership and to kind of see what's coming back. And also, you know, obviously there, the UBCM has been criticized for this really, really heavily over the last couple of days. So. Yeah. I think we have to look at that and kind of see, is, is it worth it uh, for us to be kind of going down this road? But I think that's a this discussion that we will have. Uh, we'll, we'll have it in mid-July, in fact, at our executive meeting. And, um, you know, I, I think it's a, it's important to discussion to have. And like, we are a democracy, so we should have this discussion in a really, um, you know, we should, we should listen to everybody who's coming with ideas and, and thoughts about it. Um, I don't think that it's, it, it's all one way. I think it, it, I've heard both things. Obviously... Um, with the current issues around China and how they've been elevated over the last a year, uh, it, it, it assumes a greater importance to have that discussion uh, in July at the executive. So we'll do that. On the table, though, will you will you legitimately look at whether yes, we we're going to continue with this, or is the no option on the table? Is it will there be a chance to look at this and say, you know what? Maybe it's time to rethink this. Thing. We'll keep all options on the table, Shane. <laughs> on the pay-to-play thing, which I find really interesting. Uh, I know Todd Stone has raised this issue, as you're aware. Yep. Uh, the Liberals want on the agenda. They run uh, a bunch of meetings in there, and they say they can't draw flies to some of them. Uh, but they don't want to use taxpayer money uh, to, in order to buy their way onto the agenda. Mm. Is that a legitimate concern in your perspective? Or is, it in, is, it, is local government and democracy better served by having everybody on the agenda and allowing people to choose where they want to go without having to pay for that privilege? So, first of all, UBCM is a nonpartisan organization, and we've had a very long-standing way of working with government and opposition. Yeah, nothing's changed. Uh, this is the, the practice we use with the New Democrats who are in opposition. They, in fact, did pay a, a sponsorship to get their breakfast advertised in the in, in the program. Uh, liberals have chosen not to do that. That's their choice. Um, you know, I think that ultimately we we have a very very important uh, interest in making sure that we're working well with all parties. The conventions are very, what I've learned over the last couple of months of just convention interest is very high. And people want to get on, so I don't, know, I don't know how you choose who you let on for free. You know, you have to kind of give people, I don't know. But isn't that the most nonpartisan thing, to just let people get on the agenda as opposed to charging one and not accepting money from another because they don't want to pay the money? Well, because that's competing with our own stuff that's actually done by UBCM itself, right? right. So it's like having a convention and having all these off events right. that are kind of competing with your own things, right? 
So we have a very strong place for leader of the opposition. I make a keynote at the convention. Yeah. MLAs are, I think, provided free uh, entrance, and, and they're not charged the actual registration fee. Um, you know, we have a strong interest in making sure that everybody is there. And, and definitely groups do do, like, off-convention things, and they, and they find ways to advertise them on their own, which isn't really hard to do. Um, so I think ultimately we um, uh, we always try to uh, you know make the convention better and try to refine things. I would say that process works quite slowly because we want to be very, very thoughtful about how, how we actually... Um, who we who we help promote and not promote in terms of because everybody wants in that convention because it's really the best convention of the year. One of the things, uh, the aspects of this story that, that that jumped out at me was you were asked a question by Michael Smith, <coughs> I believe, uh, about how much money is China because not just the reception they're also cutting you guys. A, a yeah, six thousand bucks. Yeah, six thousand bucks a convention. How much money you've collected over the years and you kind of said it's not our policy to discuss that. Shouldn't it be your policy to discuss that? I mean, as a local government organization, don't you have an onus to be transparent about that kind of? Well, thing? and so that, yeah, and we were actually the, the the funny part about that is that um, we 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 don't get asked these questions very often. So the sort of standard policy is no. But then when I said no to Mike Smith, he, he called our staff and they said, no, we'll, we'll disclose because I think that's important to do. So it was kind of a um, something we hadn't really encountered before in terms of a question. Yeah, Definitely we should be out there talking about those things because we, we, we work for the people, right? I mean, ultimately, you know, there, there are things in the convention that um, happen behind the scenes that probably people don't want to know. Uh, and there's things that I think we let staff do because our staff are experts at figuring out how to make this convention work in a way which actually caters to the wide diversity of people uh, who come. Uh, and, and I don't think that um, we need to be getting too much into that. But I think ultimately, uh, people want to know on a, on a high-profile thing uh, what's, what, what the deal is. I think we should be open about that. If you go ahead with the, with the China reception, you say, okay, we're going to do this this year as we've always done it, and it's going to be people's decision whether they want to show up or not. And mm -hmm. there's certainly been some call of, if that's the case, then people should decide, you know, whether they personally want to support this. Yeah. I know about your comments about China in the past. Yeah. If there's a reception this year, will you attend? As you, as you see, I'm president, I probably will attend. But what I, what I what I what I won't do is I won't be shy about talking about things that uh, the, the diversity of opinions. Right. Um, I think ultimately, uh, when I met with I met with Chinese Consul General about a month and a half ago uh, in Vancouver to talk about this reception with Pete Fry and our executive director. And, you know, we had a long chat, and, and we, we talked to her about the, the controversy that's kind of was there and will come still about this thing. And we, we, we look at it from a very, very balanced perspective, which I think is our responsibility. So economic development is a huge thing. We have forestry problems right now in the interior of BC. Economic development in China could maybe help some of those issues uh, in terms of economic development. On the flip side, we have major concerns from members uh, on you name it, you know, uh, trade issues, human rights issues, um, you know, Hong Kong. I mean, these are all things that we have to kind of navigate in a way which I think respects the, the wishes of, of a membership and, and, and also uh, provides um, us some ability to say, you know, we, 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 we've got a very, very strong uh, evidence or kind of ethical basis to what we're trying to do in terms of our work, right? So I think exactly we'll have that discussion in July. Yeah, okay. I think the ethical argument is being challenged this year because of the the different tone that's going on between China and Canada. I would say you're exactly you know, right. And I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm increasingly concerned about that country and how it behaves yeah. uh, in a rule of law perspective and in in the ability to, uh, as it is done, say, oh, you know what? 
you've got Meng Wanzhou, so we're just going to take these Canadians and, and we're going to do awful things to them, and there's nothing, and we're no, we're not going to meet. With, I mean, they act like petulant children, and mm. they, I think it's especially concerning right now. So uh, I get where it maybe hasn't been as much a controversy in the past, but I think you're definitely dealing with it at the very minimum an optics issue this year. And, and I think you're right. I mean, I, I don't, I don't think that there's I think everything you said just now are are comments we've been hearing a lot of, and I think also. Uh, we have to we have to figure out um, where the membership of UBCM kind of sits on that, and 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 to look through that very very carefully, right? Because I think ultimately, is there a is there a what's the benefit of us cutting off completely from having discussions with, with people from China? Yeah. Is that the is that the best thing to do, or should we stay in a relationship and try and talk with them as we've done over the years, um, and, and 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 create some understanding of of of, of our our culture, of what they're up to. I think also to keep those lines of communication open may not be a bad thing, but that's really a discussion that I think is very, it's very challenging. Um, I, I have a lot of faith in our executive at UBCM. We have 21 members from across the province who are very, very representative of the province as a whole, and uh, we'll put it in front of them in, in July and, and, and see what they kind of say. All right, we're flat out of time. Arjun, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for coming on, man. Thank you, Shane. We're going to miss you. <laughs> that's UBCM president, also Camelot's counselor, Arjun Singh. Jeffrey Myers coming our way next. Radio NL, 610 AM, and RadioNL.com. Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Shane Woodford on 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Good morning. Welcome back to the Woodford Show. Real pleasure to be joined on the phone as we are every Tuesday by Jeffrey Myers, lawyer and lecturer up at Thompson Rivers University. Good morning, Jeff. How are you? Oh, good morning, Shane. Good morning to your listeners. I'm a little sad this is going to be our, our last time on NL together. Listen, you can't see me tearing up because radio is not a medium which uh, provides you with a visual, but uh, trust me, Shane, the disappointment is all mine. <laughs> yeah, it's been a real pleasure, man. I really thank you for the it time you been. put on the it show. It has it's been, been awesome. and I think I've loved every minute of it, and I, you know, any listeners out there who've enjoyed it as well, thank you so much. Yeah. Um, and Shane, it's been a real privilege. As I said to you, you're a, you're a fantastic political journalist who has real insight into issues, so having the interviews with you are just absolutely uh, a great experience for me, and, and, and you just have been great. Thank you so much. Yeah, well, I appreciate that, and thank you. Um, why don't we start on this side of the board? We talked last week about uh, about Quebec's contentious Bill 21, which forbids uh, the wearing of, of religious clothing or symbols uh, when you're at work, um, and you talked a little bit about the avenues that, that are sort of available to the Prime Minister should he choose to take them up, and, and they're fraught with danger. But uh, the Prime Minister at the time hadn't said anything, and uh, he's now on record. Someone asked him about it at a press conference late last week, and I'll just quote him here. He said, We do not feel it's the government's responsibility or in a government interest to legislate on what people should be wearing. We will certainly ensure that our views are well known and continue to defend Canadians' rights. Now, Jeff, what's missing from that quote is mm-hmm. any kind of indication about what he might do or whether there's an avenue with the charter that he's willing to put himself on the line for. There is litigation going on, private litigation, of people who are affected by this public sector workers, for example, who wear award signs of religious observance, right? And they're going to be litigating on this. But what we talked about last week was that they couldn't rely on the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, and particularly Section 15 around equality, but also particularly Section 2A, around um, freedom of religion and freedom of conscience, right? That they can't make those arguments that by virtue of the fact that the legislation has been enacted with the notwithstanding clause, it's then inoculated from that type of uh, charter scrutiny. Uh, So that puts any particular claimants at a weak uh, place and a kind of disadvantage. And so one of the things I said last week when we discussed it, it was almost as if for the people who want to, this is putting aside, I know you've asked me a question about 
the prime minister, and I will come back to that. But I just want to talk about the litigation surrounding this a little bit more because it's actually where this thing is going to be driven. Um, if you look at that, you see that the, the people who are making claims and opposing this uh, legislation because of the harms it's doing to them have to frame their argument as if we don't have a charter. So what tools do they have at their disposal? They can say, well, this is with outside or what we say in the, in the, in the legal language is ultra vires legislature of Quebec. Um, this is an invasion, for example, of the federal jurisdiction of one type or another. Or they can say, you know, they could try to use um, some kind of federal uh, human rights law. Um, or challenge it with provincial human rights law. But they don't have at their disposal the kind of supreme law that is the Constitution of Canada and the Charter, unless you could make some kind of very novel argument about the having being deep constitutional values beyond the Charter, which aren't triggered by the notwithstanding clause, which would be something we would take a whole other show to potentially explore with people more expert than myself. But that is the difficulty now. So what the Prime Minister, what can the Prime Minister say? I mean, you know, the Prime Minister and that his government have been clear I think they, they, they've opposed this legislation and the vision of Quebec that the Prime Minister's Liberal Party represents is not the same vision of Quebec and it's known in Quebec that he's opposed to the law. So, I mean, in that regard, I mean, it, I'm not sure what he's supposed to say. Will the government of Canada intervene on behalf of these claimants? Are they intervening on behalf of these claimants? They probably are. Uh, the government of Canada is going to have an opinion on this. But what when somebody triggers a notwithstanding clause and it begins to erode kind of the, the constitutional um, oversight and, you know, in some ways the rule of law and the strengths of our system, the prime minister, he's left without many tools at his disposal. I mean, he, again, without having, um, you know, the ability to sort of, you know, frame these types of arguments in charter terms politically or by the claimants legally, there's a, there's a serious thing missing from the toolbox. Yeah. It, I mean, do you think that he would pick up the notwithstanding clause and kind of go down that route? Is he, is it a tap dance for him? Well, I mean, I mean we the, saw what Premier Doug Ford threatened to do not that long ago. Well, the thing is, it's going to be any prime minister, okay, is going to be very concerned when the notwithstanding clause starts being used. Now, again, it's not the first time. I think this is the ninth time in Canada's post-charter history that it's been used. One of the interesting things, though, was it really broke a massive taboo, though, when when um, at least the Ford government um, threatened to invoke the notwithstanding clause right after their election in Ontario, because Ontario had typically been the one province, I mean, along with several others, including um, BC, but most crucially Ontario, which the the um, federal government could sort of rely on maintaining the, the, the kind of convention around not touching the notwithstanding clause because Ontario always had a kind of common cause at the end of the day. Toronto and Ottawa were relatively on the same page in central Canada, the heart of the nation's industry and its population, right? So the fact that there's this kind of... so the, And so when Trudeau lost the alliance uh, of government... Uh, with the Liberal government in Ontario um, and with, uh, and with the, the government of, of Doug Ford coming in, that's when the wind started to change politically in our country, right? And you get the Alberta government, you have this kind of new right-wing axis, and now people are speculating really Trudeau's had a rough time as since because of that, because of SNC, because of a variety of things which have happened. But this has put him, you know, but now the notwithstanding clause is sort of being, is being made a, uh, no longer a taboo or it's being a, more quickly reached to by the provincial premiers who are saying it's legitimate, as you and I have discussed before. I was surprised to see, I should, perhaps I shouldn't have been, that Christy Clark, who was interviewed after she left office, she said, you know, she she thinks it is within the toolbox. The premiers, there should be sort of no obvious, you know, taboo on its usage. So this is a big 
development in our constitutional culture. And it's one which gives me concern as a constitutional lawyer and somebody who teaches in the area. I will say on the Christy Clark side, that's an easy thing to say when you're no longer premier. She never once brought it up as premier. Not one time. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, I don't know. Um, so, so, but I think most premiers actually, if you do press them on this, um, Shane, that they will tell you premiers want provinces to be able to access the sort of maximum, the maximum of the zenith of their power. Right. Like, and, and so they have this kind of interest in preserving provincial power. It's, it, it's not surprising, but the notwithstanding clause is a kind of ticking time bomb in the heart of the constitution. It's the actual fatal flaw of the Constitution, so of the Charter, I should say, more specifically. So when we brought in the Charter in 1982, I mean, one of the main concerns was, um, you know, well, if people actually utilize this power, it's going to be an awfully um, sort of thin paper tiger of a, of a Constitution. People thought it would be like the old Bill of Rights, which was only narrowly applied and could be changed by regular legislation. So this notwithstanding clause is going to be, is going to make a joke of this thing, Right. Um, but it turns out that notwithstanding clause, there was a kind of understanding about its usage and it eventually, um, you know, sort of faded um, in some ways. And now it's resurging in the kind of um, very nationalistic context and it's sure to shape the election to come. And what's really perhaps distressing is the perfect storm of that kind of politics, particularly in reaction to religious minorities and to forms of Islamophobia and intolerance with Trumpism in the United States, right? There's all these kind of vectors flowing through, um, and it makes for a very dangerous political period, I think, for our country and the world. Yeah. Uh, I've said uh, over the last little while, I, I really believe we're entering a new dark age. We're in a new dark age. Um, something happened uh, the last week or so that disturbed me greatly, and it touches on some of the, the things that you and I have talked about and how we are uh, desensitized and things that would have been outra- like just outrageous, like society as a whole would have been so disgusted that they would have stood up and tossed mm-hmm. people out of office and forced change like in the moment. And mm-hmm. somewhere along the line, we've lost our way there. We've lost a little bit of our humanity. And I, I am just like, I am incensed at this story out of the United States, whereas we know uh, the Trump administration has ordered the separation of families, migrant families coming across the border. A group of lawyers uh, were able to access one of these stations uh, where mm-hmm. there was infants, uh, toddlers, mm-hmm. young children by the hundreds. This thing is crowded, way overcrowded. In some cases, there's not even enough room in the cell to lie down. Uh, kids with, with, with crusty shirts, with uh, young mothers, like teen mothers with, with breast milk encrusted shirts, exhausted, emotionally broken children, uh, just like Jeffrey mind numbing stuff. I, I literally have to fight down tears, even thinking about my son in a situation like that. And somehow this is, I mean, I'm not going to say, okay, but it's not causing any outrage. Like, I mean, there is some, but I mean, this is something that happened 20 years ago. People would just be disgusted as a society. It's not there today. And I, I just wonder, I mean, there's some legalities involved with this, but there's also at a very basic, a basic humanity and moral code that, that something is missing here. Yeah. Well, the, uh, I read the reports and I thought they were credible reports of, of these um, conditions that these, this particular uh, camp, I, in, I think it's near El Paso, Texas, but it's really kind of rural remote spot. Whereas you say, I forget the name of the um, particular um, border crossing area where they were holding, you know, hundreds of, of people, including children, toddlers, 
uh, teenagers, all of them in the inhumane um, conditions which you described, and they are, you know, really worse than, in some ways, the historical account we have of Japanese internment during um, World War II in the United States, which is one of the deepest shames on America's uh, history. Uh, they they really sound like, um, you know, people have used terms like concentration camps, and it's very distressing. And to think of America in that way is hugely uh, disconcerting, I think, for many Americans, as well as, of course, it is for Canadians. But there is a sense in which nothing surprises us anymore, and we are desensitized and numbed uh, by the events which uh, we are witnessing around us, right? And so, I mean, my, my, you know, as I said to you um, in our own conversations off air before, is I think, you know, it's interesting for you and I to discuss this, you as a journalist, me, the kind of constitutional lawyer who has an interest in, in you know, um, philosophy and, 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 and history. Um, but really the people who can guide us to understanding this are the people who are the behavioral psychologists. Uh, and the people who are the experts in um, authoritarianism and um, in um, uh, totalitarian governments, how is it that people become, uh, you know, complacent in societies where crimes against humanity are occurring all around them or fail to believe uh, that they're occurring, whether because of willful blindness or because of a kind of cognitive dissonance? When we look at the history of our time, I think in the decades and centuries to follow, it may be those questions which we're asking again, which is which will, which is not a good look, I think, for humanity, because those were all the questions that we were asking and we hope to be asking for the last time as we came out of the atrocities of uh, the Second World War in the latter half of the 20th century and built all of the institutions, the liberal institutions, which all be which were flawed, but idealistic, I suppose and which were, are now being dismantled through a situation in which what is or isn't true is no longer subject to kind of broad consensus in society. And it is distressing and it is serious. I was struck, I mean, there's been a lot of talk about Mr. Trump himself, about what he represents and, and you know, some of the darkness and some of the awful things that, that he's sort of responsible for. And I think lost in that shuffle is when you look at terrible regimes in the past, a lot of those regimes were enabled by people, people who, who chose not to do the right thing, were unable to do yeah. the right thing, didn't stand up, uh, went along with the crowd kind of stuff. And I'm starting to see that a lot in the United States. And in an example of this particular situation where you have this hellscape that they are keeping, something that would have been inconceivable happening in the United States just a few years ago is happening today. And uh, from the Justice Department, an attorney named Sarah Fabian uh, there's a viral video now making its way around social media. She stands in front of an incredulous judge and says the Trump administration has no requirement to provide these children, toddlers, infants, with basic hygiene, with soap, with showers, with toothbrushes, uh, with clean sleeping mats. They have no obligation to do that. They, of course, do have that obligation to do it legally under the Flores Agreement from two, mm -hmm. from two decades mm -hmm. ago. But mm -hmm. I found it mind-numbing that an attorney, that a human being, would stand mm -hmm. there and say something like that. Well, it's just, yeah, I think you're, the way you start off the point you're making about it not being, it being, a, it, it, you're actually kind of at something very important, right? Is that you say it's not really about Trump or the individual. It's actually the easier way to let us, to let ourselves off the hook. Um, one of my favorite authors is a historian and a political um, philosopher named Hannah Arendt. And Hannah Arendt wrote a book about Adolf Eichmann, who was one of the prime architects of the Third Reich. And she describes in the book is actually a specifically was a series of articles that were commissioned for the New Yorker magazine for the trial 
of Adolf Eichmann uh, in the Israeli Supreme Court for crimes against humanity. Um, and she describes in several lengthy dispatches. In fact, I think there's a film that covers some of this. It's very interesting. And one of the things she finds herself looking at Adolf Eichmann is thinking, well, he's just a pathetic old man. That's what she sees when she looks at him. Right. She says, I don't see this killer, this architect of the mass slaughter of millions of people. I just see a kind of um, old man. And it's dissonant for me. I don't know what to do with the anger, with the feeling of injustice, the desire to have, you know, some kind of um, way of addressing this, the magnitude of this wrong. When I just look at this little old man sitting down there. Right. It's almost. And, and if you look at the case of Donald Trump, he's like a pathetic buffoon. It's obvious. Right. I'm um, so you actually concentrate on that. And the, the, the conclusion I think that Hannah Arendt came up with, which I found very striking when I read this as a graduate student, was it's not about the individual. It's actually about the broader social structures, political structures, economic structures, cultural structures and norms which permit this person to do what they did. And that means looking at ourselves and looking at our institutions, looking at our assumptions, looking at our blind spots, right? It's actually not a trial of this individual. It's actually a trial of our system, which brought us to the point uh, that we've arrived at, right? And so that's a much more uncomfortable thing. And that's why you don't feel like the sense of expiation when you try a war criminal and then you're able to um, punish that war criminal. In this case, you know, uh, in many cases, some of these people face very serious punishment indeed, but there was no, it didn't resolve the matter because the actual um, system itself was in place. So the system that we had where we had cheapened our truth discourse through a kind of infotainment world, of which Donald Trump is a symbol of, was already well in place. In fact, he was a, a leader of that kind of world, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Um, the infiltration of money into politics uh, has been there for a long time, and the corruption sort of a, by a millionaire class of regular politics. I mean, these, the, the rise of a kind of extremist nationalism, um, these are not totally new things. They were there. The, the um, dysfunction and sclerosis of the two-party system, the alienation of regular people from kind of neoliberal globalization, all of these factors were there. They were ignored. They were marginalized as not part of the mainstream discourse. And then they, you know, thrust themselves into the mainstream discourse. The way I, you know, allow myself to sleep at night is I say, look, you know, Bernie Sanders almost was the nominee last time, and he probably would have appealed to some of the people that um, Donald Trump did because he targets that same um, feeling in, 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 in an odd kind of way, but would have used that power, I think, for good rather than evil, even if you might have disagreed on the finer points. Um, and I think the same is true in, in all of us. There's transformative possibilities right now, but right now the agencies of kind of reactionary anger are stronger, I think, than the ones who really want to have an idealist or like blue sky view of the future. And and it's 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 something we're all we have to be very aware of. That's what's happening in the in the environment in which we're all living our lives. The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is that good men do nothing. Edmund Burke. Well, I mean, Edmund Burke is, and that's funny that you, you cite Edmund Burke, who of course is the is is a kind of. He's the he's a traditional conservative. He's the kind of conservative that's pretty much extinct, right? Um, uh, now, but he and, and kind where yeah he he was look I'm no conservative but Edmund Burke's the one conservative that even um, progressives like so that you you can get away with that quote as far as I'm concerned it's true. <laughs> uh, moving on to other matters, uh, the showdown between uh, Congress and and the Trump administration, the Trump White House, I should say, continues on. There's an interesting situation. The House Oversight Committee. 
uh, is requesting information about uh, President Donald Trump's meeting with Russian President Vladimir Putin. Of course, they have another scheduled right. meeting fairly soon. Uh, if we'll remember mm-hmm. back a few months ago, they had a private one-on-one in which all records and transcriptions of that meeting were destroyed. We have no idea yeah. what they spoke for. Right? It was about two, two and a half hours or whatever it was. Yeah. Um, so uh, the House Oversight Committee is basically saying, we want to see these records. Uh, we feel that if they're not there, that the president may have violated the Presidential Records Act by confiscating mm-hmm. or destroying these documents to keep mm-hmm. the details of the meeting secret. Uh, your thought on that? You know, I wish I remembered. At some point, I had the factoid to hand about which president it was and which administration it was which brought in the Presidential um, or the Archives Act, which basically requires presidents to preserve everything and all, and like including emails, all communications, for the obvious purpose of having that be scrutinized by historians uh, in order to have a historical record which reflects uh, reality. So. In all the same ways that Mr. Trump subverts these norms and disregards them, and in all the ways that in a normal situation this would this would be absolute you know front and center and cause the president to lose the next election is just one news cycle in the current environment. Yes, that's true. You remember that uh, meeting back in Helsinki, and the one again where even in public Mr. Trump was very obsequious in his dealings with Mr. Um, Mr. Putin against the backdrop of, of disbelieving all of the security uh, admin, uh, agencies in his own government who said that there was interference. I mean, he's denied interference, and that was something that's been established repeatedly and also most recently in the Mueller report. But he then goes into this meeting, and he excludes from the meeting um, any of his staff or aides. He has one person, I think, taking notes in there, and then he tries to tear up the account. That he, the person felt it was such an extraordinary situation that came forward with the account that he tried to tear up the notes. So, I mean, clearly not wanting scrutiny on the discussions with uh, Vladimir Putin. And, I mean, I don't know. Honestly, I'm not a presidential historian. I don't know how common – my understanding from the little I know about it is it's not common for two leaders, particularly of countries which are adverse uh, to one another or not the closest of allies, to be in a room alone together with nobody else or with one other person only and perhaps not necessarily translators for both languages or larger, broader um, staff members, that that's very, very unusual because there needs to be an account of what was said and what was promised, right? So that action points can flow. And if there's any kind of contest about what happened in the future, you can go back to that record. So to, to, I'm understood that this is fairly unprecedented in the context of U.S. presidents, particularly meeting with people like, you know, prime, uh, presidents of Russia. Um, I, I don't think it's, it's probably not uh, it's probably not the first time it's happened, okay? Um, and one can't really know. I don't know. Um, but this sounds uh, really outrageous, and the reporting around it is, uh, you know, sort of par for the course and, and sort of paints a broader picture, um, you know, of a president who you know, ha- wants to have private conversations with uh, Russian officials. And it certainly does nothing to disabuse at least the appearance, if, if not the um, actual, um, you know, evidence, at least the appearance that there's some kind of something nefarious going on. And uh, last but not least, uh, Jeff, there's an interesting trove of documents came to came to see the light of day recently uh, that shed mm-hmm. some light on the Trump transition team and, and just what an absolute gong show it was <laughs> and why the why the White House is the dumpster fire it is when you think about all the people that have come through what has been an insane revolving door and continues to this day. Uh, yeah. But it shed some light on, on the lack of overall vetting on some of these people. It shed some light on the thinking. For example, there was a big red flag over a guy like uh, General David Petraeus, 
who was, uh, who was considered for a top job in cabinet, and uh, he was ruled out because he was opposed to torture. And one of the other <laughs> ones that caught my eye was Chris Kobach, who is currently in the running to fill the vacant top spot at the Department of Homeland Security. His risk is, and I quote, he's listed as white supremacist, a potential liability. He may have ties to white nationalist groups. Uh, but this is mm-hmm. a guy running for a top job now. Well, they had Steve Bannon in there, right, who was the... Who was the um, kind of shadow chief of staff, right? I mean, there was no, and they of course had, um, you know, Michael Flynn in there, who President Obama is said to have warned uh, Mr. Um, Trump about in their transition meetings that it's just not a trustworthy uh, individual with whom we associated. He blatantly ignored that. So he explicitly brought people aboard who were in many cases controversial or who would have been ruled out or wouldn't have made the short list or been within consideration of any other president, Republican uh, or Democrat. And that was part of his signal willingness to sort of go at the political establishment and do as he pleases, and he's always viewed uh, the security apparatus who does and the, and the kind of you know compliance and rule of law folks who want to you know see vetting done as being uh, you know superfluous and you know having you know not his best interest in mind. So he's been a kind of outlaw president in, in that regard, and again behaves more like an authoritarian than normally a democratic leader would. Would behave, but again, the, the 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 blame for this is to be spread around because all, a lot of these cabinet appointments, right? Of course, uh, were were happily um, you know accepted by the Republican-dominated um, uh, at the time House of Representatives, but more importantly, conferred the ones that required Senate confirmation were confirmed by the Senate, right? So these now the the checks and balance was too too. Um, deferential in the face of presidential executive authority, which has become a habit over the last 20 or 30 years, uh, and which is an especially bad habit where the president's not in good faith and is willing to break with democratic norms. And that brings to an end. Jeff, a pleasure, sir. Thank you so much. Absolutely, Shane. I look forward to collaborating in uh, some other context and in general to appearing also on the uh, Radio NL uh, radio wave sometime uh, over the future, even if not with you, unfortunately. And I look forward to staying in touch. Thank you, my friend. I really appreciate it. It's been my pleasure. Take care. And that was Jeffrey Myers, lecturer up at TRU, also a lawyer specializing in constitutional law. Really enjoyed our chats over the last little while. Hope you enjoyed them too. And that brings to an end this edition of the Woodford Show. We'll see you again right here on Radio NL, same time tomorrow. Where the interior stays connected, this is CHNL in Kamloops, a Stingray radio station. Radio NL, 610 AM, local news now.